Laura? Danny? You didn't let me finish. I don't wanna I don't wanna record a podcast with you. I just wanna bash your brains in. Welcome to Film is Lit. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura. I'm the book expert. And today we have a very special episode where we're covering The, the Shining. Shining. And we have a special guest. Laura, would you do the honors? Of course. The special guest is my brother Robin. He is, I think one of The Shining's number one fans. And so we decided that since Robin loves the movie so much, he was going to be our first podcast guest ever. So welcome, Robin. Thank you, guys. I'm very excited to be here. And like you said, it, it's a great movie, great book that I just got into recently. And uh, yeah, very excited to be here. Well, welcome. We are very excited to have you, Mr. UC Berkeley grad. Woo! Woo! He's not culminating, unfortunately, thanks to the thanks to the pandemic. Oh, it's no secret, Rob. <laughs> it's it's all all seniors. But he is graduating, which is the important part. Right. Yeah. Just just scrape by. Just almost, only because they have the pass fail policy. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, don't worry. The graduation ceremony isn't all that. It's only. All the that. culmination of four years of intense hard work and bonding with friendships, and it all comes down to one day where you reflect on your your intense journey that was college. Oh. For those of you who can't, who can't see us, I'm wiping the tears away. I'm wiping the tears away, reminiscing about my college experience. Honestly, same. Yeah. Must have been nice having all four years. Yeah. Well. It was, it was pretty great. Yeah, I had a good time in college. That's where I learned all of my literary analysis skills. Shout out to Dr. Flory. <laughs> Nerd. No, I'm kidding. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just get right to it because we've got a lot to say. We don't want this podcast to be over a couple hours. So, But every time I reread this book, this is the third time, by the way, I keep thinking this is going to be a long podcast. Yeah. Because there's a lot to say. There's a lot packed into this. Mm-hmm. Robin, what's your journey coming to be the biggest fan of The Shining? Sure. So for me, it's not too crazy of a story. Um, I'd heard a lot about this show, uh, tons of references in, you know, different TV shows and movies throughout pop culture, but not being a huge fan of horror movies or, or much, much of anything in that genre, I, I kind of tended to stay away, but... For whatever reason, it was, I, I believe it was a Saturday morning, um, I think it was my freshman year of college, huh. and um, yeah, I was, I was pretty bored, and I think I was doing some laundry, so decided to throw it on, and I had actually texted Laura about it beforehand, and you know, I ran it by her wondering, because she knows me better than anyone, and ran, you know, wanted to know if there's anything I should be worried about, or, or anything like that. Anything to close your eyes on, because he's yeah. tender. He's a tender boy. <laughs> exactly. Like uh, like the first time I saw Return of the Jedi, when mom would, wouldn't let me watch the Sarlacc. But anyways, so... It's all hey, her it's fault, intense. isn't it? I, no, I get it. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I, I threw the movie on, and um, it, it hooked me immediately. The, the psychological nature of it, you know, we'll, we'll obviously go into it in a little bit, but um, it really hooked me, and... Beyond that, uh, the book I came around to a couple years later, I think it was about a year ago that I first started uh, reading it and then had put the book down, but once Laura got into audiobooks, um, which I'm not sure if she's talked about, um, mm -hmm. but I decided to rent it on, on the app called Libby, and uh, yeah, so once I got it on Libby, I decided that I would uh, go ahead and listen to it while doing work and really enjoyed it, and sometimes would even have to go back because I wanted to make sure I, I got everything um, mm -hmm. and yeah, really enjoyed the book and obviously there are a lot of differences that we'll get into. So yes, it'll be great to compare the two. All right. Well, I'll pick up from there, uh, because I think Robin and my shining journey sort of interwove because I actually have a very fun fact to start out with. So I was touring colleges back in 2011 and my mom and I went to CU Boulder for a college tour and we, <laughs> I guess going a little bit further back in Robin and my history as siblings, Robin and I were obsessed with the show Ghost Hunters. <laughs> and so when I was in Colorado, 
my mom and I found out that the Stanley Hotel, which had been featured in one of the Ghost Hunters episodes, was available for ghost tours. So after my mom and I had visited CU Boulder, we drove out to the hotel and took this really cool ghost tour. And we had a really fun docent who took us around the entire hotel and started talking about The Shining and how the interior shots had been shot in the Stanley. And I had never seen it because like Robin, I was not a fan of uh, thrillers or uh, slashers, slashers or scary movies. So I just sort of wrote it off. Okay, cool. Never going to watch that movie until I decided not to go to CU Boulder and ended up at the University of Jamestown for college. And that's Jamestown, North Dakota, <laughs> Jamestown, go North Knights. Dakota, <laughs> go Jimmy Knights. And in my senior year, I took a class with my advisor called film and lit. And in this class, we were basically doing exactly what we do on this podcast, reading the book and then comparing the film slash television series based on it. And the third book that we covered was The Shining. So I read it first, watched it later, which is the best way to introduce yourself to a story, I think. And from there, so I read the book, greatly enjoyed it. And then during class, filling up Coke cans with wine, <laughs> watched the movie with my class and my advisor, uh, and I loved it. I'm sorry. Did you really do that? We did. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so watched the movie, loved it, adored the changes that Stanley Kubrick made to Stephen King's original novel. And since then, I think I've watched it probably 15 times, I, I don't know, countless. And I've read the book three times now because it's an absolute favorite of mine. And you're always uncovering new little things. And especially with the movie, the acting just blows everything out of the water. And I think something I really enjoy about not only rewatching the movie, but also rereading the book is because they're so different. I don't have any challenges reading the book and even seeing the same actors in the movie in my mind when I'm reading the content of the book because it's just so different. And so I think that makes both things really enjoyable by themselves. So that's my journey with The Shining. Cool. What's your journey, Danny? What's your I'll journey? I'll answer. <laughs> My journey is one of deep despair. Oh no! <laughs> I was right around the age that Danny was in the film. Eight. Really? Not when I first saw the movie in its entirety, but my brother, who is eight years older than me, Matt, was watching The Shining, so he was sixteen, and I had kind of stumbled into the room being like, what's that? Drunk. Yeah, drunk <laughs> off my butt. <laughs> I started early. Um, <laughs> drunk and no, I, well, being a kid's kind of like being drunk. This podcast <laughs> has gone point. off the rails. Uh, so I came bring in. It in yeah, bring, bring it in. Bring it back. Damn. Uh, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> he's in here, Mrs. Torrance. <laughs> so I came in and my brother was kind of like, Dan, this is too scary for you. You're not going to like it. And me trying, looking up to my brother, trying to act tough, was like, no, I can take it. And I turned to the screen, and it is of Danny brushing his teeth, talking mm -hmm. to Tony. And he first, first gets that vision, and it flashes back to his face in sheer terror, and which was my face, the oh, same, mirroring no. his. Of not, I was too young to understand what was going on, similarly like Danny himself mm -hmm. in the movie. So I saw that first image of the blood pouring out of the elevator oh, uh, no. at a very young age, and that kind of scarred me for a while, <laughs> uh, for a good month. I slept with the light on um, from Aww. there. So it scarred me for a long time. And then in high school, which I'll talk about in other episodes as well, I really got into filmmaking. And specifically, I sought out the films of Martin Scorsese, Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, and also Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. 
and I finally watched it, and yeah, it was pretty was pretty blown away because at that point I had I had gotten over my fear of it, and um, <laughs> enough time sure had passed you that sure you, you could see yeah. the light off. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was funny. We'll talk about this after we rewatched the movie for the the podcast. I had I had a nightmare of yeah. uh, Jack Torrance chasing me around oh our apartment with an axe. And it should be said that I don't have nightmares. I don't really dream either, or I rather, I don't really remember my dreams. I certainly dream, but in this case, it was so vivid after watching the movie Waking mm-hmm. Up. Um, so I think part of that is still in the back of my mind. And that's kind of what, uh, watching it in high school, I, I had known about his reputation, and it had... It's known as being one of the scariest films of all time. Mm. Uh, it's ranked up there. Then I'd say Robin and I are pretty brave. Yeah. <laughs> pretty brave, yeah. But I had gone into it knowing its hefty reputation. And, and a lot of times when you when you set your expectations like that so high, it's easy to be disappointed. Mm. Uh, I tend to do that with some mm. of my favorite filmmakers with their new films coming out. I just, I can't help myself but mm-hmm. just seeing like, this is going to be the best thing ever and, and being disappointed when it's not. But in terms of horrors and horror films and adaptations, I could tell then and tell now just the craft at display, like with all most Stanley Kubrick films, is so high that you just have to admire it. And as much as it is scary, it's also kind of awe-inspiring on a technical level of what they're able to accomplish. So, yeah, I've been I've been a huge fan of the movie specifically since I saw it in high school. And I've been kind of, you know, reticent to read the book because of Stephen King's very public mm-hmm. uh, dissatisfaction with the adaptation. I, I can't really say, you know, I don't have much credibility to say that Stephen King is wrong not having, you know, read the book. But the, the movie adaptation was so incredible that I've always had the thought in the back of my mind that I think Stephen King hates it, that movie adaptation, just because it's because of the drastic changes from the book. Well, yeah, I can, I can attest to that a little bit. So Stephen King especially disagrees with the part where Jack Torrance snaps Mm-hmm. So he believes that the movie is so different that it changes the message, which, sure, I totally agree. There is a hugely different message between the book and the movie. But as we've talked about before, that's what I like about it, because it's so both meanings, I think, are so interesting and so deep that I think it's really interesting that the author and the filmmaker got such deep messages that are so different out of the same idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so that's specifically, I think, what he's really reacting to, which, yeah, sure, you know, if it's your own content, you'll probably feel pretty married to it. But Yeah, and I'm not saying that he's wrong. I just think that criticizing a movie of this caliber is kind mm-hmm. of like, it's kind of just like let it go. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like you might hate how they change certain things, but also it's just, you know, well, you've written exactly so like, many books. It's exactly like Ken Kesey and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Sure. It's great book, great movie, hated the movie that based on his own book. So. Well, and this might not be backed up by fact, but I suppose King was definitely established by the time he wrote The Shining, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But the story itself became what it is now because of the movie, I suppose. True. So, I mean, the movie, I, I don't know if I... I'd say it put it on the map, but in some in some ways, I, I suppose it would. It eclipsed it a little yeah. bit. I think, well, for sure. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, I'm sure many more people have seen the movie rather than read the book. Yeah. So, yeah, I can I can see that too. Yeah, well, let's get into the, uh, the big differences between the book and the movie. So, Robin, what do you think is the most striking difference between the book and the novel and the adaptation. Sure. Um, so just glancing at Laura's notes, I noticed the the same thing that I, I first made note of. And the biggest difference that, that I could tell is everything revol- revolving around Jack. Um, just the character and how his role plays out through the book versus mm-hmm. the movie is distinctly different. Uh, very, very different. And 
right off the bat, I mean, with the if if we're looking at the movie, part of it has to come in. You have to come into the context uh, knowing a little bit about Jack Nicholson, uh, the actor himself, and so it, it's hard to come into the movie without any previous knowledge of you know prior roles he may have been in. But you already get the idea that he's a little off the rails, mm-hmm. maybe not to the certain degree that you would expect by the end of the movie. Um, but has Jack Nicholson ever murdered someone with an axe? No. Is that your question? Not that we know. <laughs> not that we know. <laughs> exactly. But coming, you know, even in the first couple scenes, one of the things I made note of was Jack meets with Mr. Ullman, which is um, one of the head people and uh, one of the head managers at the um, at the hotel where Jack is applying for his job. And Ullman describes the tragedy that happened a couple years before Jack's arrival. And it was a person that was in the same role that Jack is going to be um, taking on at the uh, as a caretaker, and um, Oma describes what this man Charles Grady did to his family. And the thing that I made note of was Jack's face, uh, which is very distinct, and his face goes completely blank and kind of gets that almost thousand-yard stare. That hypnotic, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and seems completely, you know, un. Perturbed, uh, you know, inert. Yeah, I think is the word I wrote down. Yeah, and I think it was very distinct. And having watched it many times, it's you know it's hard to separate what you already know about the character. But it's very distinct. Whereas if this was somebody else, you might expect them to be concerned or you know have that second thought and like maybe I'm not supposed to be here. You know, maybe this isn't a great I- great idea. But Jack is completely unperturbed. unperturbed. Yeah, I agree. That is, it's such a great scene to set up the character of Jack. And the story, the book opens with this same scene. And the biggest contrast between the book and the movie, I think, is where Jack starts, where we see him opening the story. So in the book, we see that he's this struggling school teacher. You get a lot more background to his character. He has written a few things that have gotten accepted into some major publications. He's gotten paid for some short stories. He is already sort of contemplating a novel. So he's kind of an established sort of academic type. And when he meets with Ullman in the beginning of the book, he hears a story about Grady and he is a little bit more reactive. Like he does start contemplating a little bit more about like the isolation but he comes back to Ullman and says, that's exactly what I need. I'm really hoping to kickstart this novel that I've sort of been starting to outline. And I'm really up for this challenge of being isolated, but I have something to fill the time with. In the movie, we see him meet with Ullman and he is already in a very dark place. You can see that he's already, I mean, He's judgmental of Ullman in the book, I think, because he's, I think, very clearly challenged and frustrated with authority figures. But in the movie, it's like you just feel this hatred and this jealousy emanating from his performance. You just see, like, he wants to put up this front of, like, I can handle anything because I'm masculine and that is my identity. And so that really defines him and grounds him with that anger and that resentment and that challenging nature. And that's the personality that defines Jack's character throughout the movie. And because he's already starting at that point, you can clearly see that in the book, the hotel is able to leverage that crack in Jack's sanity of being already being an alcoholic and angry and trying to define himself as masculine and as a writer versus the movie where Jack is already abusive in a very different way, I think, in a very more intense way than in the book. And he's the one that almost drives the hotel to pull out that survival instinct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to, to run off that uh, just a little bit, the the way I kind of cut it down was with in the book, you know, the hotel is using him. You know, he's this mm-hmm. perfect mold for what they already need, and he, mm-hmm. it's like he gets to the hotel, and and it's like he's a puppet that they're just, you know, putting their hand exactly. into. Exactly. Uh, versus uh, 
in the movie, you know, Jack is coming in with all this. And it, and that's why the movie itself is debated whether Jack was already an entity that was connected to the hotel and it was just his reincarnation coming back. Right. So that's one of the... Yeah, which is why Jack Nicholson is perfectly cast because he seems mm. like a guy who's mostly normal, but just under the surface, there's a there's a psychopath hiding there. Oh, yeah. Just bubbling there, just waiting for anything to incite that first spark and there perfect yeah. casting and and especially that that opening scene and the beginning of the movie in general i love it because it oh, overtly beautiful. it overtly directly indicates the dangers or that mm-hmm. that are to come we're told right off the bat that jack is an alcoholic who severely assaulted his son mm-hmm. right when the movie opens there's ominous music oh, over yeah. what is a scenic shot which you think you don't normally would see those two, that imagery matched with that score. And that's another note I wrote down that this movie doesn't save scary music for scary scenes. Oh yeah. It's immediately scary and which puts you on edge, which is kind of the point of what Kubrick was going for was to put you on edge to get you immediately creeped out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And the supernatural elements are revealed immediately the the rug is pulled right out from you when Danny's talking in the mirror that's minute 10 when that comes out that's very early for a movie and this is a long movie too so for that element to come in so early sets up sets it up even more it's such a long tease until that kind of explosive third act of Jack running around with the axe and yeah that that scene with Ullman it's just revealed what's going to happen he Ullman essentially tells the plot to the audience and you, as an audience member, I mean, you know you're watching a film, right? You know you're watching a horror film. So it's like, oh, this something like this is probably going to happen. So the buildup is not from what's going to happen. It's how is this going to happen? How is, it, how is he going to break? So I think something really interesting that the book and the movie do very differently is the supernatural element. And I really want to dig into that more mm-hmm. because with the book... It's so clear that this is a haunted house story. The hotel, I remember so clearly in my lecture with Dr. Flory, I remember so clearly him talking about the hotel as being a very real character with a very real personality in the book. And it has a mind of its own. And, you know, when I read, reread this book for the podcast again, I had the imagery of the boiler as sort of the heart maybe even room 217 as the as a heart you know there's a there's a mind there's a heart the boiler always has to be you know the pressure has to be released so that it doesn't overflow or and explode and i think maybe you know room 217 is the brain and there's there's a very clear character that's developed that this hotel is evil and that it's using jack consciously as a way to draw Danny's powers into itself to become more powerful. In the movie, it's very different because like we talked about, Jack is already coming in with this anger and resentment and condescension toward his family. The conversation in the in the very beginning in the car just the Donner party? breaks your heart. It's <laughs> you mean so... they ate them all up? They ate each other up? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes, Danny. It's okay. He saw it on the television. <laughs> no. Oh, Shelley Duvall. We'll get to her. <laughs> we will. But it's heartbreaking how condescending he is when he talks to Danny and especially his wife. It's so clear that she's already been so beaten down by his psychological and probably physical i think that's sort of implied that he's probably physically abusive with her as well Mm -hmm. as he is with danny so that energy is already coming in and it's revealed so early that he's not coming to the out the overlook for a second chance like it's sort of explained in the book you know as a writer as a father as the breadwinner in the movie it's just so much darker and he already has that sort of insanity like i guess i sort of stated earlier like he's the one that draws it out in the mm-hmm. movie rather than in the book the hotel draws that out of him mm-hmm. so yeah. that's probably the biggest uh the biggest change 
Absolutely. And one thing I'd kind of like to draw back to uh, related to all of this, uh, which Danny began to talk about, was I think one of the things that I love about the movie so much is that that first scene when they're dri- when he's driving through what is actually, I, I believe it's Montana, but you know it's supposed to be Colorado. Like you were saying, these shots are of these beautiful state parks and these you know incredible mountain ranges, but the music is so daunting and makes you understand that there's this other entity there that's beyond anyone's control. And I think one of the reasons I love that so much is that you know, you, you romanticize the scenery and, you know, the movie is set in the late 70s. It's kind of a romanticized period piece. Mm-hmm. And it's so majestic that it, it, it makes you feel so tiny, you know, this little this little yes. bug car that's driving on this one lane highway. And I think that really, like with the music in combination, it adds to that suggestive feeling of being there, another being another entity present. And I think that's Kubrick's way of creating that entity because I think if he had tried to do that with the hotel too much I think it would have kind of taken away from the the intensity of the movie and similar to some of the other things that were retracted like the um the hedge what are the hedge animals animals. I know about this yes exactly so that like something like that which would have been I think way too difficult to sort of caricature yeah right I I think I think they would have taken away from the movie if he tried to do that with the hotel so I think immediately presenting us with that that idea of there being, you know, some greater force or entity out there that's... Or he's that he's bringing malevolent. in. Malevolent, yeah. That yeah. It, it really sets the mood, and I I love that score. I mean, it just... Yeah. When I need a fix of The Shining, and I don't need to watch... And I don't have two hours, I will watch that over Ooh, and over. <laughs> give me that so, sweet, yeah. sweet score. Um, <laughs> the next change I wanted to go over was how Tony is depicted in the film. So, mm-hmm. versus the book. So, in the film... It's Danny talking to himself via, he has that little finger wave to represent when he's talking to Tony and he mm-hmm. brings in that voice. But in the book, Danny's actually talking to, um, a, per- a person appears to him, which is uh, supposedly his older self. Mm-hmm. How do these interactions uh, change the story you know, between you know, the book and the movie? I think it's really just an alternative self or someone that knows more than Danny does about the Overlook. I think in the book, it's kind of implied that Tony sort of knows stuff about the Overlook. Maybe that, I don't know, he's a part of it, or he gets a little bit darker as the book goes on. And so I was, a maybe I'm a little bit still unclear. His intentions are a little bit more abstract. He gets a little bit darker as the book goes. And I think in the movie, he's more of a warning, like a an angel. Yeah, I actually made character. an interesting an interesting uh, guardian point angel. about that was when I was rewatching it. I noticed at the beginning of the movie, at least my interpretation was you're a little creeped out by Tony, you know, because he shows him these images that are very disturbing, and you know the way he describes him as he's a little boy that lives in his mouth. It's it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By all means, but. The, the change that I saw came when Danny first, uh, actually, excuse me, it's not when the first time he sees the, the twins, but um, when he turns the corner on his, uh, on his big wheels and they're standing mm-hmm. there and, you know, they, they flash between the images of them standing there and then them dead mm-hmm. uh, and bloodied. And Danny, you know, immediately puts his hands up to his face and, mm-hmm. you know, and then he looks again and they're gone and he starts talking to Tony. But the thing that I, the shift that I saw there was, that Tony starts reminding him what Mr. Mm-hmm. Halloran said when he kept telling him, you know, it's, these are just images, these aren't real things. And so I thought it was interesting because, like I said before, my interpretation at the very beginning of the movie, you know, when you first see this, is that Tony might be a malevolent character mm-hmm. or, you know, might be somebody bad because he shows them these images. But then you kind of understand that he's more showing them these images to as a warning, mm-hmm. you know, and, and reminding him of, of ways to cope with it and react to it better he's kind of a guardian angel in my head yeah danny's character is the one that keeps its integrity the most i think throughout the book maybe other than dick halloran but i think overall he stays the most similar i think he has more of an allegiance to his dad in the book 
they sort of describe him having a good relationship and seeking Danny's advice or Danny's comfort more than his mom, which causes a little bit of jealousy. But overall, I think he's similar. And I like the way that they cast the character. In fact, we just talked about Tony. And one of the notes that I took when I was watching the movie again was that he's so good at going between Tony and Danny. That shift is really, really hard. And excuse me for talking about Mad Men, because I'm sure I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna talk about Mad Men oh plenty. Oh boy, here we go, <laughs> During folks. this podcast. Favorite show. My absolute favorite show. Um, but in, in Mad Men, there is a character, Megan, who acts on a soap opera. And one of the things that she gets bad feedback for is that she's playing a character and her twin, and she doesn't have enough acting range to differentiate between the characters when she's Mm -hmm. playing one or the other. And so because I'm not an actor and I don't know how to look for those things, I took that as really interesting advice. So when I'm watching someone who's either playing two characters or watching, you know, twins playing one character or something like that, now I'm a little bit more aware of those changes. And when I was watching Danny act or the kid who plays Danny act this time, it was so interesting to see that shift. Like he really changes and the camera isn't cutting those aren't times when he can you know switch his it's not distracting it's very natural yeah yeah it's really natural and it's like i said like the the camera's not cutting where he can sort of recollect himself and reorient in a different character he's switching in the same cut and i just think that's really impressive Mm -hmm. and the actor who played danny his name is danny Danny oh, Boyd. is it yep. really? Yeah. Oh, he's, I didn't know that. That's really sweet. Yeah, he's now a professor um, in Kentucky. Huh. Yeah. Professor of what? Um, insert, you dumb bitch. <laughs> insert research that I did here. Um, I, I, I don't remember, but thanks for calling me out. <laughs> All right, sorry. bye. Sorry. That's our podcast. <laughs> now, could... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's switch to uh, another pretty significant character switch in Wendy. I am, for the most part, a fan of Shelley Duvall's performance. Well, I think from the midpoint on, as soon as she starts to be terrorized, that's mm-hmm. when she kind of her performance kind of goes from not the best to amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very widely publicized that Stanley Kubrick would softly bully Shelley Duvall on set to put her in this constant state of hysteria, which she needed to be in for these scenes. I'm not arguing that this method of directing is the best for someone's uh, psychological well-being, but this was his, his way, and it yielded this pretty incredible performance from her. Stephen King has is quoted with saying that he hated the changes to Wendy's character. He said, wow, what a weak character. She has no agency. She's like a little sheep. And rewatching it this time, I noticed, I'm like, what is he talking? Like, sure, she's reacting very strongly, but that's probably because of years of kind of implied abuse or at least mm-hmm. verbal abuse, and which is finally at coming. At the very least. Yeah, right, which agree. is finally coming to head with him actually attacking her. And she tries to reason with him, but then she she swings a bat. She hits mm-hmm. him in the head, and she could have run away, but she drags him as he's regaining consciousness. She could have got attacked again, but she it drags him. It always makes me so nervous when yeah. he reaches oh, for the door frame. <laughs> yeah, what a he's scene. He's right there. Yeah. All he had to do was like push a little yeah. bit against the door frame. I completely agree. And, and then she puts him in the lock-in... Um, Cupboard. Cupboard there. Pantry, so yeah. I really, I think, I don't really know what Stephen King was getting at by saying she's a weak character. I think she, she's, <laughs> she's scared. She's like, a, a, she was scared. And I think she, that perfectly comes across. But how is she different in the novel? Yeah. Um, so I, I've definitely heard both sides of the argument. I know the, the biggest thing is that the word that always surrounds her is resourcefulness. And mm. I think Danny spoke on this a little bit, but... The ending is very different. Maybe yes. not very, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, but with regards to, you know, who survives, mm-hmm. um, she plays a big role in that. And I think the the reason people have an issue with her in the movie is because of how she's portrayed in the book. So 
she's a very different character in the book. Number one, she's described as blonde, sort of sexy as a character, successful mom, I think, or successful in the sort of gender role as a mom and as a wife and female. So she changes significantly for the movie. And in the lecture, having read the book and not seen the movie, my professor talked about how she was bullied on set. And so I went into the movie ready to not take her seriously and pick apart her performance as just sort of a poor acting ability and sort of her like being pushed to be that sort of silly or being directed in that way. And I have sort of grown to understand that the character is just interpreted completely differently. So I have, again, come around to believing that she is acting in a very convincingly abused role. So she's portrayed as almost asexual, like she's constantly covered from her neck to her absolute toes. Like she's constantly wearing leggings and boots and high collared jackets and loose clothing, loose clothing yeah. long sleeves. Like she looks just absolutely emaciated. And I think that's because she needs to be portrayed as this sort of, this woman who's given everything up about her personal self to embody the female role of being a wife, servant, mother, and that's sort of it, end of story. Mm-hmm. And the way that she's come to be that way is because Jack, I think, has sexually and psychologically abused her. And if, for example, I mean, look how he approaches the woman he finds in room 217 or 237, whatever. He immediately doesn't care about cheating on her, you know, is very sexual toward this woman. And that's what he, I think he's projecting into that room because the room understands what's going to seduce him. And so like, it's a fully naked woman. And the contrast between that woman and Wendy is I think to me indicative of the fact that he sees what he wants to see and he takes what he wants sexually. Yeah, there are other instances earlier in the movie that are a lot more subtle, Um, you know, him checking out the women as they're walking out of the hotel. Totally. I think there's even claim that he's looking at a magazine that's maybe not pornographic, but of that, you know, Elk. in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, so there no, are other I, instances too. I, I personally see that as an interpretation that he's been sexually abusive of her and her shield is to completely cover herself to make her absolutely asexual so that he doesn't feel like he wants to make sexual advantages advances toward her. And so I think her eventual realization that she has to protect Danny sort of comes about in a different way than the book, but it's also very similar where she just, she like is the protector. For a while in the book, she has to gain Danny sort of back onto her side because he trusts his father so much. Just, I don't know, maybe because he's a boy and whatever, they they have a male connection. But in the movie, she's just immediately his protector, like mm-hmm. constantly almost shielding him from his father because of how... It's kind of interesting, I think. It's almost a wink wink nudge nudge to people who have seen who have read the book to say that that Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder because in the book he breaks his arm. And I think it's a little bit of a dark sick joke that in the movie it's kind of hinted that maybe it wasn't just a dislocation mm-hmm. that's sort of Wendy protecting Danny's image toward sure. to the psychologist she's talking to because she maybe doesn't want her to report them to child protective services yeah. like i think that when jack in the movie is talking to lloyd at the bar and he says just a little extra pressure per second per, per second, second and he snaps I think that that means he broke his arm. And to people who have read the book, I think that means Wendy's lying to protect Danny's position in their family. And in the movie, it's just a way of saying like, of course, Wendy wants to protect him, but it's... And you can see it from that that woman's face. Yeah. Yeah, She stares stares back at Wendy with a blank stare, you know, and she's concerned. Oh, yeah. And then Wendy 
awkwardly laughs it off. You know, right. she's smoking a cigarette, kind of calming her nerves oh, down. Yeah. The ash, and, how the ash grows at the yeah. end, and she never mm-hmm. ticks yeah, off the end of the cigarette. Yeah, and, oh, and kind of plays it the off. The tension you know, and, in that and, scene and, is and just incredible. Her, or, and, you know, tells her that he hasn't touched an alcohol. You know, it's it's actually a gift because he hasn't touched alcohol in five months or whatever it is. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway. So, yeah. So, anyway, I guess going back to, like, Wendy's arc of the character, she does, I think, become the savior at the end. I agree that I'm against the way Stanley Kubrick treated her on set. I've seen some of the... Behind the, behind the scenes, scenes footage. footage and he has this I, cold indifference to her. he does and i think personally because i've had bosses treat me like that in the past i would not react very well to that and i think maybe more power to her if she was able to internalize that and put it into her performance i personally react to that by quitting and saying i don't want to work for you anymore because that's not how i like to be treated but i think seeing interviews with her later she did claim that she was able to take that and learn from it and put it into her performance so again more power to her i think she did a really great job and how am i to judge how someone would react in that situation danny would you like to chase me around hotel with an axe to put me into that situation (laughs) i don't know kind of i don't know what it's time to release some internal demons (laughs) Um, yeah, no, well said. Siri, what does emaciated mean? Uh, remember when he said that? Okay, no, I know what it means. Um, yeah, no. For the fans, define it for the fans. For the fans. Yeah, no, both Stanley Kubrick and Shelley Duvall have publicly stated that they have a mutual affection for each other after the movie. Mm -hmm. The filming of it was hell for her, and, um, she lost some hair, you know, in that behind-the-scenes footage of just of getting it caught on the window a bit. I hear you, sister. I have been there. I have have brushed my hair and had clumps come out because of the stress that I have due to my job and my boss. Yeah. But you mentioned that the bathtub lady scene and one of the, in my research I came across, co-writer Diane Johnson, who's really cool uh, woman. Mm. You should look her up. Uh, she had a bunch of cool quotes about this, about the making of this film, and she really reined in Stanley Kubrick and some, but it was her decision to in the movie have things escalate a step further by having Jack actually kiss mm-hmm. uh, the, having the old woman come out and kiss and then mm-hmm. yeah to have her because in the movie she's always this uh, sorry in the novel she's always this right. old uh, kind of grow uh, decomposing body but, because of a woman who had actually died in the hotel right, right yeah and there's a whole backstory with that right, right. but yeah. in the movie it's all unexplained but to have that extra step further is such... That's an example of kind of elevating the material to make it even creepier because it's one thing to see decomposing yeah. old naked woman in a bathtub, but mm-hmm. then to have the switch of having her be this kind of siren luring Jack in because she knows he's mm-hmm. an easy target and then having that reveal after he's full-on kissed her that she's this decaying old body. I mean, yeah. Oh, full-on yeah. embracing. Oh, yeah. That is... Uh, Touching those swords. Yeah. One of the goodness. grossest scenes ever. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Ever. It is so <laughs> revolting. Her eye sockets and when Watch. she's... Her saggy but, boobies. Yeah, I, yeah saggy <laughs> boobies. I, I wanted to shift more focus to the movie and to the element of the movie of the unexplained. Mm. Sure. Because whereas a lot of things in the novel are not necessarily explained 100% of the way, there are more backstories to everything. Like, yes. for instance, yes. the old woman yes. and... and um, Don't you do that again, Robin. No. <laughs> for instance, the old woman and other elements of kind of going into the backstory of the hotel itself. And the hotel in the novel is revealed to be this entity within itself. Right. So Jack is sort of given the reveal through this scrapbook that all of the people who oh, Danny is seeing... That's such a cliche. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the hotel sort of feeds Jack this scrapbook that he finds in the attic, you know. And supposedly uh, it makes an appearance in the movie. It does. Yeah. It does. And you know what? Sorry I got really excited <laughs> there, but this time I watched it for the... 15th or 18th time I had not recognized it but there is a scrapbook on his t- 
typing desk mm -hmm. that I had not noticed until the time that I watched it. And I wrote, yep, you can look through my notes. It's an all bold type. I was so excited to see the scrapbook because I had not picked that up. The, and again, you know what? I don't think it's important that they don't cover it in the movie because I think that it is really explained in the novel as sort of this entity that the hotel creates to draw Jack in to make him think that he has to stay and he has to dig up the story and, you know, but basically all the people who are presented as like ghosts or zombies in the movie, like they're all people who supposedly really died in mm -hmm. the hotel. So that's, yeah, right. sorry well, to that, sort of draw that out. No, that, that ties into my point of that's an explanation. It's not a thorough one, but it's there. Right. Whereas in the movie, you get none of that. And, um, right. and I wrote this down listening to this uh, Beyond the Screenplay podcast, really good podcast. They're talking about the element of uh, creepiness. And there's this study done at Knox College that basically its thesis was that creepiness is anxiety aroused by ambiguity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, of mm -hmm. whether there is something to fear or not, or or whether you know the nature of a threat or not. Mm. And that's why I think this movie's just so dang creepy because yeah. you have all these things happening and it's all left up to your imagination and interpretation. But other films do this, right? But some are successful and some are not. A film kind of similar that I like compare The Shining to, not thematically, but kind of what they're going for in terms of symbolism and tone is uh, Us, the movie that uh, mm -hmm. Jordan Peele's Us. So Us is also a film that has a bunch of symbolism, a bunch of stuff happening, and there's very little explanation. But where I think, in my opinion, Us falls short is that it provides just enough explanation for you to go, wait a second, if that's true, then mm. that doesn't make sense. And wait, what do you, what does this all mean? And mm. like that, if you, even if you start establishing rules, if you, if you don't establish all the rules, everything starts to fall apart. Whereas The Shining, it's a very simple story when you boil it down. It's about a family where their father is slowly going insane. Mm -hmm. And the hotel, the Overlook is haunted, but it's not clear how or by by what certain forces or what the rules of the haunting are or if this haunting brings out projections from your own subconscious or if they're actually there because it passed course, and you know some people argue that that it's just jack going crazy and none of it was really there but it's like well then who let him out of the cupboard and yeah, like what did I, what did wendy yeah. see yeah I, so, could, I have a comment about that yeah so so to tie it back to us though like The Shining, Us is a technically amazing film for in terms of like cinematography, acting, and all that. But I think it, I think it severely drops the ball in the ending by trying to provide answers. It, it, it both has a complex story and it has a lot of complex themes going on. Whereas The Shining is a very simple story, but with a lot of complex stuff going on, leaving it up to your interpretation. So that's where I think the unknown works in The Shining where it doesn't work in the Us, where in, in Us, because you, it's like, you know, like, what is going on in the hotel? Mm -hmm. What is the, the photograph at the end? You, know, you can have these really long right. conversations that, and, and you could, your conclusion, you're not wrong because Stanley Kubrick leaves it just open enough for you to, for you to form your own opinion. And yeah, let's, yeah. let's get to that photograph. What do you think uh, that means in the movie? So before we get to that, I, sorry, I want to what? backtrack a little bit because I want to talk, I want to build on what you were saying earlier too, about how I disagree with the people who interpret the fact that all of the hauntings are in Jack's mind because we have very clear evidence that he is physically let out of the pantry. We have evidence that Wendy, when she's sort of running around completely lost and trying to find Danny, she sees projections. She sees the dog slash bear giving the guy a blowjob in the room. And she's hearing, I think she's- the skeletons. Right, the skeletons. Mm -hmm. And I think she's clearly reacting to sort of that audio chanting, which is really creepy, but she's sort of 
looks around at some points and it's like she, there's nothing else that she could be reacting right other to agree. other than the audio sort of uh cues so yes i disagree with the people who say that that is completely in jack's mind and then when you're talking about what makes things creepy that sort of gets to the bottom of the hotel in the book versus the story in the movie so what's really what i think makes the book really creepy is that you know it's a haunted house anyone could imagine you know staying in a haunted hotel which you know there's all of the imagery of labyrinths and sort of that labyrinthine hotel layout where mm. you never know where Danny is. Is he on the first floor? Is he on the 15th floor? Is he, you know, oh, and then they're tracking, in the... Those tracking shots with those the... Those tracking tr- shots. Trike. With, oh, oh my God. Incredible. On and off the carpet. God, those those parts where he goes... It just sound is... Into the kitchen, into the hallway. It's just so... It's so well done. It just really grounds you in that reality. But so what I'm saying basically is I think... The reason the book is creepy is because we can all put ourselves into a big hotel that automatically makes your mind run and go when you try to put yourself to sleep. And, you know, you're thinking about the past of the hotel. Is there energy trapped there in some way? You know, is there something that sort of stays in the walls of places where I'm sure people have been broke broken up with, babies have been conceived in these rooms, there perhaps have been a murder or a suicide, you know, you can, you can put yourself in that situation and then push it to the extent where that can make you go crazy. And of course, Jack in the book gets the vindication of proving that he is truly a good father because he makes, you know, quote unquote, the cliche ultimate sacrifice where he has a moment of clarity, he sees what the hotel is trying to use him for, and he sacrifices himself and kills himself in front of Danny because he wants to protect his son. And that is ultimately, of course, tragic because you don't want to put yourself into that situation. You don't want to think about your dad having to like kill himself to protect you in a hotel. And so <laughs> that, I think, on a very visceral level is creepy and sad and makes you ponder your own existence. And it really kicks it up a notch. And this is where I love the movie, even though I don't like thrillers. And like I have not, for example, seen Us because I think that might be a little bit too much for me to take. But where the movie really takes me to the next level is I love pondering the end every time I see it what does it mean that Jack's always been there? Like, you know, there is no logic to frozen. it. And he's frozen in time. Yeah. Like, he hasn't aged. But then where has he come from? Where did he come into Wendy's life? Like, sure. those things to me, I think, change sort of every time. There's like a little piece of the puzzle that sort of shifts and like doesn't fit fighting to to figure it out but yeah and you kind of like yeah you kind of like push it off because you're like i know that scene is coming where it zooms in on his face and it's 1923 or whatever it is and you just can't reconcile and i love those stories i think that's where i really thrive when i end a book or a movie or a tv show and i maybe can't figure out the ending, what's to say I'm not going to come back and try to figure it out again in a place where maybe I've changed and it's been a year since I've seen the movie or it's been three years or it's been four years since I reread the book. You change as a person and I think that's the beauty that keeps you coming back. Like you're, you're like, man, maybe now you're a parent or maybe now you're something else or you have a different job and that to me is where it keeps drawing you back. So that's kind of where I think the movie succeeds and the book sort of closes the story in a way that you can't quite come back to as a different person every time. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because I, I made note of that and it's like you can kind of just tuck it away and then revisit it. Like you said, oh, yeah. it, the setting is so that, you know, it's this isolated place. It's like, you know, it's always there in the background, but, you know, you can kind of revisit it later and, you know, he drives out and, you know, three hours along Sidewinder, Mm -hmm. you know, to get to the hotel. And then everything happens there. But 
you know, it's there to revisit, you know, and I think an interesting little thing that might be worth mentioning is in the book, they're there for quite a while before the snow set in, sets in mm. and they visit, uh, the town. yeah, they mm-hmm. visit the town quite a bit. They go in and out. And I think that's, a, I think it's a really important difference that, that Kubrick made, you know, obviously within the constraints of the, you know, of a time of the timeline or the length of a movie, but you know, they're able to kind of get get away for a while and, you know, there's that easing into it. Whereas with the movie, it's immediate. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really good point. And another way that the book closes, so this isn't something that's in the movie at all, but there's an epilogue to the book where we didn't discuss earlier, but Dick does not die in the book. He is their savior, which kind of also... Shout out to Wendy, Wendy in the movie, who's who comes across Dick's dead body and still gets them out and is the hero of the mm-hmm. movie. Ultimately, Wendy is the hero. And in the book, Dick isn't just sort of a character who becomes important because he drops off the snow crawler. Yeah. In the book, he ends up driving them out. He saves them. He brings them to Maine, of course, because... Every single Stephen King novel has to we get have it. some You're kind of from name. there. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> and uh, and as Dr. Fuller always reminds me, Stephen King took a lot of cocaine every time he wrote a book, so that's why they're a little crazy. But yeah, so the the book ends in such a tight in little fire. knot. Oh well. And also, that. so that was another thing I was going to bring about uh, bring up about Robin's comments is that the hotel is destroyed. At the end of the book, the boiler explodes, the fire consumes Jack and the entities, even as far as the woodshed or whatever, you know, there's a little snow shed or whatever that gets eaten up by fire. The hedge animals get eaten by fire. Everything is completely destroyed by this cathartic cleansing of fire. And so you can't go back to that place. And again, going back to how the movie just keeps pulling you in. It's like, that will always be there. That hotel will always be there. Jack will always be the caretaker. And there will always be something about the hotel that drags yet another caretaker in. And Mm -hmm. however it decides on who to exploit or what it's trying to get might change. But even that shows you like, what if I stay at the Stanley Hotel? How is it going to draw me in? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because, because the outside was shot in a different place than the in interior. Yeah, the, and... the outside was the Timberline Lodge in yep. Uh, Oregon. Yep. Right. Yeah, we're, we're the outside exterior. But yeah, shot. that just sort of, that extends my point to the fact where any hotel or motel you stay in, there might be that energy that sort of draws you in and draws people in and sort of keeps people's souls there, keeps people's energy there. And that, to me... Hello. Next time I spend the night in a hotel, mama ain't getting any sleep. (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah, hotel, (laughs) hotel, holiday (sighs) inn. I'm I'm happy the boiler was emitted from the movie because if Mm. there was a boiler that you had to test twice a day to make sure your hotel didn't explode, you'd be shut down, right? Right. Well, so that's, that's a funny point, actually. So one of the things that is interesting to me in the movie is that tell me who the only person you ever see tending to the boiler wendy wendy so i think that sort of extends the fact that she's become this servant to jack like jack has no interest in taking care right so jack has absolutely no interest in taking care of the hotel during his stay, right? Like he's completely obsessed with this stupid book or novel. He throws ball against these novel <laughs> mosaics. So yeah, he's like, yeah, he's absolutely ambivalent uh, to the fact that he's been given the responsibility. And he keeps using that as an excuse with Wendy as to why he should stay. Every time she's like, we have to leave, we have to get Danny out because of his health. You know, when he teases her and he's like, do you think we should go to a doctor? That whole thing, he's using the excuse of, have you ever thought of my responsibilities? Like, he does not take care of the hotel at all. Again, like, 
the only person you ever see one time taking care of the hotel is Wendy. And that's when she's in the boiler room and he hears him, she hears him screaming and he's having like mm-hmm. that nightmare and stuff, which I think you actually mentioned when we were watching the movie. Didn't you have a theory about the nightmare that Jack has at his writing desk? Oh, I, my theory was the nightmare he has was his kind of former self before he had been consumed by the overlook of trying to break out. But, but his, the nasty parts of himself had taken over and now he's fully become this uh, crazy uh, Axe murder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, similarly, I've always interpreted the ending photograph to be like when you die in the hotel, your soul gets get trapped there. And mm-hmm. the ghost world is kind of this place out of time. So you're, you're, he's, he's, when you're dead, you're always there. It's not a matter of like when you got there. Yeah. It's all time exists at once, kind of at at, um, at the overlook. And just like Jack has, quote unquote, always been there, the evil part of him, the malevolent part of him was always bubbling under the surface. And mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. you know, it's this allegory of how, you know, Jack kind of always was an axe murder, like he always was at the hotel. It, just that scene with him confronting Grady in the bathroom was so great. Incredibly shot. And it breaks the uh, 180 degree rule, which is when you're having a conversation, you film it on on a line. Mm. And if you ever cross that line, it's disorienting. Like you don't know where they are in the room. So that's, that's always... And the 180 degree rule is not just for conversations. It's just, it's for motion in general. You always shoot two sides on a line. You can never cross that line. Yeah, I didn't know that. You taught me that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so th- that's a cool little detail of that scene. But yeah, no, I, I think Stanley Kubrick himself has said that Jack is like a reincarnation of a previous caretaker. I don't actually ascribe hmm. to that view. I just, I'm more of the, once you die in the hotel, you're the, you're there. You're, the, you're trapped forever in this kind of timeless state um always all you and you come out through these malevolent events like the next person who comes and loses mm-hmm. it that's when you're released and you get to like go to the party like like all the other people are and and not and all those other people they might ne- not necessarily be ghosts themselves mm-hmm. some of them might be but it's kind of like they're in forever they're, the ghosts can also be haunted themselves. They're forever at the Overlook, at always mm-hmm. attending a party, always always being there, having some job in some in some way. So, yeah, man, what a what a way to end a film. Yeah, I I agree. I don't know if I've ever thought about the picture in that much depth or tried to explain it as much as that. And I really agree with what you're saying. So I think that's probably where I leave it. I also just enjoy the ambiguous nature of the ending. And mm. I, of course, if you haven't seen the Key and Peele sketch of <laughs> when Jordan Con- Peele goes to the Continental Breakfast. And yeah, you, he's, YouTube Key and Peele <laughs> Continental Breakfast. Yeah, if you know that Jordan Peele has always been at that hotel getting... <laughs> with the paper too um no i just i enjoy the ambiguous nature of it i enjoy that it can mean something different every time i watch the movie and that it's just creepy enough to think that jack has always been an entity somehow haunting the hotel and always will be i just i enjoy that as it is absolutely (laughs) well hot damn yeah, what an episode. Closing thoughts. I am thoughts. flushed and happy. Yeah, oh, Laura's on her third g- tall glass of wine. A <laughs> nice Pinot Gris. She's drunk. <laughs> Punching the air right now. Yeah, hey. <laughs> oh, man. Pinot Gris will do that to you. Robin, uh, closing thoughts. Yes, you're on the spot. Go. No laws when there are claws. Cut that. Oh, oh no. Rob- Robin's, Robin's <laughs> drinking a white claw right now. No. Um, Ass is sweaty. Knees are named Betty. Mom's spaghetti. That's the <laughs> lyrics. Go ahead, Robin. You know, I I have a hard time chalking up a movie like this uh, or the book uh, to to a you know an easy theme or or message. Um, I haven't been trained in in English literature like Laura has, but 
you know, my takeaway, and I, I know we've kind of beaten this to death, but it's just the fact that the hotel is still there. You know, it's it's like Danny said, There's it's like the, it's a timeless setting, and there's this greater entity that just draws susceptible people, you know, people that have, you know, are just on the edge. It draws them in and consumes them, and it's a, it's a cycle. It's, an, it's a never-ending cycle, and the fact that it just remains there in this separate area to exist, and... It, it's like, you know, with, with, with some thrillers or, or horror movies, I think that there's, it's an easy way to separate yourself because you can, you can rationalize certain things as not being real. And in the movie, I think that ambiguity kind of speaks to the fact that, like, at least for me, you could kind of see it being legitimate. Like, I, you know, you can kind of say to yourself, like, I can kind of see this, something like this happening. Mm. And I, I think the fact that it just feels like it's out there forever is so mystifying and, and you know, compelling that it, it just keeps bringing me back. Couldn't agree keeps more. Keeps bringing me back to the hotel that's haunted. It's a great Couldn't way of wrapping this up, Robin. bring me back as just we're going, keep going back to the movie. Yeah. Well, Amen. I believe that is it for The Shining. Thank you for joining and... Thank you for inviting me. Yes, yes. thanks to Robin. Robin. I know Thank I had to you. twist your arms. <laughs> yeah, you really had to twist our arms to get on here for your favorite movie almost of all time. Or um, was he here? Has he, he always, always been, been here? here? <laughs> Has he always been here? <laughs> Drink some more wine. Um. <laughs> all right, and I guess that's it for this episode. And join us next week when we cover Lolita. The Ooh, another Stanley, movie, another Stanley Cooper adaptation. Follow me on Letterboxd. Danny G Reviews is my handle. Robin, where can the nice people find you if you cho- choose to be found? At Robin underscore ceiling. R-O-B-E-N <laughs> underscore S-I-E-L-I-N-G. On uh, Instagram? Yes, sir. That is? Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening to Film is Lit. And remember... If you take away anything from this podcast, it's that all work and no play makes you want to grab a crispy boy. Am I right? <laughs> Chug <laughs> some brews. For the boys. <laughs> for the boys. All right. Bye. Bye.